Well, last week I began a, a short series of sermons on John chapter 17, what is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll read through that again. There's uh, three sections to this high priestly prayer. First of all, he prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and finally he prays for the church. And today I wish to uh, look at that second, or part of that second section, uh, the first part where Jesus prays for his disciples. In a couple of weeks' time, uh, I'll be, uh, God willing, pray, preaching from the second part of, of that section about his disciples, uh, that well-known section there about where he prays for those who are in the world, and not that he's taken them out of the world, uh, but that they might also uh, be blessed by God in the world. But that's for next time. This time we're looking at the fact that God has given certain people to Christ. John chapter 17, let's read the whole thing. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, that they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
So far the reading from uh, God's Word. Uh, Before the preaching of it, let's sing together from Psalm 61, Psalm 61, verse 1, 2, and 3. to read again from uh, John chapter 17 verse 6 through to 12 as that's what I'd like to focus on this morning. <clears throat> John 17, 6 through to 12. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, that they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So far, the reading from the text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last words are meant to be meaningful. And 
if a loved one was about to die, we would want to know what, what they would say. And if we had the opportunity, if they had the opportunity to say something noteworthy or important, we would tell others about it. And it's something that we will always remember. We hold on to these words not just as a way to remember them, but also because, in many ways, these may have been a way that described who these people were, what made them tick, what they were passionate about, and what ultimately was important to them. But the last words of a human being, no matter how important they may have been to us, can, not, can never be compared to the last words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we should not only be thinking about those words that he uttered on the cross, those words which culminated with him committing his spirit uh, to, to the Father and saying, it is finished. But those last words of Jesus also refer to the words of John chapter 17. John 17 is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. Because it's a prayer in which the Lord Jesus Christ prayed just before he went to the cross, just before he went to die for his people, and it's a prayer in which he prayed for his disciples and for the church. And it's these things which make this prayer so meaningful or to us. John chapter 17 is a prayer of God the Son to God the Father. It's a prayer of one person of the Trinity speaking to another person of the Trinity. And it's a prayer in which the Lord Jesus, he reflects on his relationship with the Father and on the work that the Father had given him to do. And then praying in that context, he prays for those whom the Father had given him. And he does so for our comfort and for the Father's glory as well as his glory. So today I wish just to, for us to, to look at this and, to, and I wish to preach on these things as we turn especially to, to John chapter 17, verse 6 through to 12. And in doing so, we'll reflect on that first part of Christ's prayer for his disciples. Now preach God's word to you under this theme. Our Lord prays that the Father might keep those he has been given. Our Lord prays that the Father might keep those He's been given. So two questions. First, who has been given? And second, how are they kept? Well, when you go through John chapter 17 and you read this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing which comes out as you read from it is that this is a confident prayer. Jesus is praying with confidence. He's praying with conviction. And He's praying with conviction about what He's done. He's, he's convinced that he's done what the Father had given him to do. He's completed it. And he's convinced that that which he has already done and that which he's about to do, which is go to the cross, will be successful, will bear the fruit, will have the consequences that he had hoped for, he had anticipated. So John chapter 16, sorry, chapter 17, verse 4, he prays about what he's done. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And then he explains further in verse 6 just what it was that he did. He said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And as you read through John chapter 17, you learn that he, he is convinced that he has done this well. He's done it perfectly. He's done it successfully. And so he prays the second half of verse 6. He prays, yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. In other words, exactly what I preached to them, they believe. Now, we'll get back to this verse later on in this sermon. But for now, I want you to reflect on the conviction that Christ had. That not only had he done what was expected of him to do, but that he was successful in what he had done. In other words, what he'd done to that point of time, and what he would do also in going to the cross beyond this, it had not been for nothing. He's convinced. He's convinced that he will see the fruit that he had come to get. Now, in some ways, this is, this is surprising. Because if you go through the gospel according to John, uh, chapter 17, and then if you read on in through from chapter 17 to chapter 18, you might have thought that as Jesus, at this point of time, he's not going to be confident and he's not going to be, be thankful to the Father and so forth, but he's going to be discouraged. Because what was going to happen is that on that very night, those disciples he's praying about are going to abandon him. And one... Simon Peter is going to deny him. But it's not just this which could have caused Jesus to be discouraged. In fact, all the way through his ministry, there was reason to be discouraged. John chapter 1, at the very beginning there of, of this gospel, John chapter 1 verse 9 through to 11, it says, The true light, and that's Jesus, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And then verse 11. He came to his own, that is his own people. And his own people did not receive him. Did you hear that? The world didn't know him and his own people didn't receive him. And as you read through the gospel according to John, you will see that this happens again and again and again. And it's not just John, it's all the Gospels you can see this in. And that, of course, Jesus in, in Matthew 11, when, when the, the places where he did the greatest of his works, where those people did not repent, he had those words of woe, those woes. And he said to them, woe to you if the works which ha had been done in your places had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But those very cities... Of, Galilee, of the region of Galilee, those cities in Judea, where Christ did his work, the vast majority of people that did not receive him as the Christ. And then coming into Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19. John doesn't mention this fact, though Luke does. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on that donkey, and he goes through the mountain of olives and he's, he's there on the, the corner of the road and he's looking over Jerusalem. There's the valley of Kydron. He's got the city of Jerusalem in front of him. And he weeps over Jerusalem. 
how it was as if I would have loved to have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so when you add all these things up, you could have expected that Jesus, the Son of God, as is about to go to that final stage, which is his, his crucifixion, that he would have been discouraged. And it's like, what was it all about? Why did I do this? And why have I come down to this earth? And, and every single time I go to these cities and to these places, my heart goes out, and yet these people will not believe. When Jesus prays his prayer in John chapter 17, he prays with conviction and he prays with confidence. So the question we've got to ask is, how come? And this is an important question. Yes, it, it makes us really think. And yes, it's a difficult thing for us to sometimes get our minds around and to really wrestle with. But it's an important question for us to wrestle with also now because it really has an effect on how we see the work of Christ overall and how we see particularly his work by dying on the cross. You see, and, and this is true, there are many people who do not have this confidence that Jesus had. There are many people who would not speak with such confidence either. There are many people who teach that, well, Jesus has done all he could to save us. All he was basically doing was making it possible to save us. But there was no guarantee that anybody would actually be saved. And why not? Because ultimately, that did not depend on Jesus at all. He's simply making it possible. And then he's sitting back with his hands behind his back because he can't do anything. It's up to you and your ability to choose whether or not to be saved or not. Well, let me explain that a little bit further then. This is that common teaching, and, and I've been preaching about this in the afternoon services. We've completed that on, on the cancer door with about this matters about Arminianism and so forth. But, but this common teaching is this, is that in order to save as many people as he could, God made a decision to send his son Jesus into the world. Jesus would live a life here, and then he'd go to the cross to die, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But in this teaching... Jesus basically came to die for everybody in the same way. But then those who actually would be saved would be those who by their own free will, out of their own volition, without any work of God's Holy Spirit, that they would choose to be saved. In other words, all the onus lies on you, the individual. And so what Jesus was about to do, they would say then, was by dying on the cross, he was simply opening up the way to be saved. He was making that highway to God, that highway to heaven. But then for you to be saved, ultimately, it's for you to decide whether or not you're going to go down that road or not. Now, in a sense, that sounds kind of good. In a sense, for us, some of us, that sounds actually something which we would think is, a, is attractive. Many of us, and myself as well, we, we like to be in charge of our future. We like to, to be masters of our own destiny. We like to have that sense of, of control over our lives. 
And in that context, they say, well, this makes sense. This is good. But let's not be fooled here. Because if there's something we can learn from the rejection of those who heard the Lord Jesus in person and who saw his miracles with their own eyes, is that by nature our heart is hard and left to ourselves, we would not believe in him. And that's what the scriptures teach us again and again and again. John 1 verse 11, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. Or Romans 3 verse 11, no one understands and no one seeks for God. And that is in your own fallen state. And this is the truth. If all Jesus did was to open the way for us to be saved and then stand back to see if anyone was to believe or not, his work would have been for nothing. And the Gospel according to John points it out again and again. Just a couple of places here. John 2, verse 23 to 25. Is that right at the beginning? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Yeah, the initial thing of some people going up to follow him because I liked his, his miracles. But Jesus knew their hearts. In John chapter 6, after declaring himself to be the bread of life, it says that even some who were closest to him, they then departed from him. John 6 verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and then no longer walked with him. Uh, those disciples were not of the twelve, but the point was made. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then even when it came to the twelve, even if we were to discount Judas Iscariot, as I mentioned, um, and, and as, as John chapter 17 speaks of as well, even then, if you to look at those twelve disciples on that way up to going to Jerusalem, and their behaviors and what's going on, and they're bickering and they're fighting as though who's the greatest? Their fears, their lack of trust when they're in this boat in the Sea of Galilee and the waves are big. They're doubting that Jesus is able to help them when they're in the wilderness and there's 5,000 people who need to be fed. Again and again and again, they show that their faith was weak. And yet, when Jesus prays to the Father in John chapter 17. He prays with confidence and he prays with conviction that he will be successful and that he will have a people for himself. How come? How could our Lord be so sure? Well, the answer to that question has to do with what Jesus had really come to do and who he had really come to save. Let's have a look again. John chapter 17, verse 6. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So to whom did Jesus manifest the Father's name? 
To whom was the name of the Father revealed? It was, Jesus said, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And then again, verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Now, by the way, just, just as, a, as a side note here, the Bible speaks about the world in different ways. Uh, we just read earlier in the service from, from 1 John chapter 2, where Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. John chapter 3, God so loved the world. What we see from these, in these verses here is that the whole universe, the cosmos, the world as, as, a, as, as the earth, it belongs to the Lord. And God will have a people from all throughout this world. But the Bible also uses the word world in a different sense. And that's that different sense here. And that is fallen humanity. Those who are outside of the love of Christ and the love of God. That's what he's praying for in verse 9. Where he says, I'm not praying for the world, that is those who are opposed to us, but for those whom you've given me. And verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so as you go through these verses, as you go through John chapter 17, the question is, to whom did Christ make God known? Who got to not only hear the gospel, but also who got to, to grasp the gospel and to believe the gospel? And the answer to that question is, those who are given by the Son, to the Son, by the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And those who would get to know the only true God were those who were given to the Son. Or as it's also called, it's those who are the elect. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying here is that those who received his word and those who would receive his word and so be saved were those whom the Father had given to him. And those whom the Father had given to him, they would most certainly be saved. And that's what the gospel according to John also says again and again and again. John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And John chapter 10, first of all, verse 14 to 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who is Jesus laying down his life for? For his sheep. And John chapter 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And I and the father are one. So what the Bible teaches us here is that when God the father sent God the son into the world, he sent him here in order to save specific people and so that they might believe and they might have life in his name. 
And what the Bible teaches us here is that those whom the Father has chosen and given to the Son, they would necessarily hear the gospel. And then as they hear, what's going to happen is the Holy Spirit's going to take that word and He's going to put it into the hearts of these people. And He's going to change those hearts. So those hearts are no longer hard hearts or indifferent hearts. But so those hearts are actually softened. And so that those hearts are changed. And so that in their hearts, there is that world of desire to hear and that world of desire to believe. And that heartfelt response to say, yes, I do believe the gospel. You see, this, in that sense, it is a choice. It is something you can say to somebody, you, you must, and you do make that choice. But it's something which God has worked in you through His Holy Spirit. And so this is why Jesus prays with His conviction. Because the salvation then of the disciples and the salvation of the elect, of all the elect, it's not dependent on the people to whom he's going, as if somehow of their own free will, outside of the grace of God, outside of God's work of this Holy Spirit, that they're going to come to faith. But it's 100% dependent on God, who said, I will have a people for myself. And so now, who has God given to the Son? Who has the Father given to the Son? Well, he's given those who were elect to eternal life. And then who would be kept in that salvation to eternal life? Well, the answer is all those whom the Father has given to the Son. And that's why the Son could pray with such confidence. And that's why we can pray with such confidence as well. Because Jesus knew that his ministry on earth, including his upcoming death and resurrection, it would achieve exactly what God had planned. You see, and this gives us confidence because that gives us the assurance that God the Father, he's heard the prayer of his Son and that all those who are given to him, including us, will be kept for eternal life. And so that does bring me to my second point, and that's my second question. How are they kept? In the Bible passage I'm preaching from this morning, John 17, 6 to 12, the Lord Jesus twice said in verse 6 and again in verse 9 that those whom the Son had came to save had been given to him by the Father. And since the Father had given them to him, they would always be his. But the Son still prays about them to the Father. It's not just a case of saying, oh, well, if they're saved, if they're elect, whatever happens, that's all fine and, and, and it'll just happen. No. He prays for them. And he still prays that God might keep them in his name. John chapter 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so what he prays for is keep them in your name. But what does it mean to be kept in God's name? Well, when we think about a person's name, we mostly just think about it as the way to identify that person. There's nothing special in my own name, Stephen, for example. It's just my parents at the time, they, they chose it, they liked it. 
They thought, that's the, what we'll call our, our newborn if he's going to be a boy, and that's what we'll call him. Uh, so that he might be identified. And so you can, I might be distinguished from others. And I suspect that for most of you, that would be the case as well. But when we speak about God's name, well, that's different. When it comes to God, his name is who he is. His very being is tied up with his name. And so when the Lord Jesus prays in John 17 verse 6, and he says, I have manifested your name to the people. What is mean here is that, is that God himself is made known to them. And when he prayed in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, he meant protect them by the power of your name. And so what Jesus done with respect to his disciples is that he has revealed the Father to them. This is the manifesting. He's made him clear. He's, he's preached, he's taught everything about God, his justice, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his, his anger against sin, his, his almighty power and all these things. Jesus has revealed the Father to them. His disciples then believed in God. They kept his word, verse 6. And now the Lord prays that the disciples might be kept in God's name, might be kept safe and guarded in his power, and so that they might be with Jesus when Christ comes back on the last day in all his glory. And it's in this way that the Lord specifically prays for his disciples, for those whom the Father had given him. And he says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for those whom the Father's not given me. They're outside of his grace. They're opposed to the truth. But he is praying for his disciples. Yes, he's praying for us. He's praying for those who have come to know the truth and to believe that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of God, the one whom the Father had sent into the world so that all who believe in him might have life in his name. And so this is what Jesus is praying. And now you can be sure that God has heard and he will hear this prayer. You can be sure because the salvation of God's people is not dependent on them, but it's dependent on God from beginning to end. It's dependent on the fact that God has chosen his people from eternity. He's chosen them from everlasting, from, to everlasting life. And it's dependent on the fact that God reveals his name to those he's chosen and he leads them in faith. He leads them to faith in his name. And it's dependent on the fact that God sent his son to reveal God's name. Yes, to make God known to us. And it's dependent on the fact that God's son has fulfilled the work the father had given him to do. And this is why Jesus prays with confidence. This is why he prays with conviction that his work on earth will bring glory to God, the Father, and bring glory to him, the Son. But now what about you? Are you one of those about whom Jesus is praying in John 17? Are you one of those whom the Father has given to the Son? Are you one of his elect? Once again, sadly, there are people who want to twist the Bible's teachings about election to make them something that they never were and that the Scripture doesn't teach. 
They wish to twist the fact that God has given certain people to His Son and not others. There are some people who want to turn this into something that will not give you comfort, but rather consternation, fear. If Jesus only laid down His life for His sheep, they would say, and if He's only praying for some and not for all, if that's God's choice, not yours, well, then if you are to be saved, then how could you ever know if, if you're one of the elect? How could you ever know if it really is God's will to save you? What's the point then of anything? Because if you're if you elect, well, you'll be elect. And if you're not, you're not. Then that's all there is to it. And then from that, they'd say, well, what a terrible, horrible doctrine that is. But people who speak this way get us all mixed up. People who speak this way have got it wrong. But rather, it is this teaching that we who belong to God the Father were given to God the Son that we might be saved in Him. It is this teaching that gives us confidence, that gives us assurance, and gives us indeed confidence as we come to pray to our sovereign God who has all things in His control, including our salvation. You see, if it was up to us, and if our salvation depended on us or on any other person, even for a moment, if it depended on our own strength, on our own ability, we could never be saved. We would most certainly all fall away. But since it is God who keeps us safe, since God keeps us in His name, we will be saved and we will be safe in Him. But now how do you know that? And how do you know that if you are one of those called by the Father and given to the Son? Well, let's not overthink this, because the Scriptures teach us. And it's not hard to understand in that sense. You're hearing the gospel. You've heard it. You're hearing it again. And so what is your response? Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, He says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And later in John's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse, verse 31, he writes, John 20, verse 31, These are written, these things are written, so that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so that means that if you believe in Him, and if you come to Him in faith, you too can be absolutely sure that you are one of those whom the Father has given to the Son. John 1 verse 12 and 13, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. And if you do receive Him, if you do believe in His name, then you too can be sure, you can be confident that you will be kept in His name. As the Lord said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All, and hear that word, all, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And now that word of comfort. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that a wonderful word of promise? 
You see, this whole doctrine, and yes, it is challenging for us to get our heads around this doctrine of election as we hear it again from John chapter 17. But this whole doctrine is not given for us to be confused or discouraged, but is for our confidence and for our conviction and for our comfort. Because in this way, we can also have that conviction and assurance that God has all things in our control, including our salvation. Yes, including the salvation of all those who are His. And that He will indeed do what He is determined to do. And how can you be sure of this? Because in John chapter 17, not only did Jesus declare this, but Jesus prayed this. As our great high priest, Jesus came before the Father in prayer. And he prayed for those whom the Father had given him. He prayed that the Father might keep them in his name. And we know that the Father will do exactly that which the Son has asked of him. God has answered and he will answer his prayer in every way completely. Our Lord prays that the Father might keep those who have been given to him. And the Father will do so because the Son has completed the work the Father had given him to do. John 17 verse 10, All mine are yours, Jesus said to the Father, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Last words are meaningful. They're meant to be meaningful. The last words of Jesus are the most meaningful of all. The hour had come for the Lord Jesus to be crucified and go to his death. But before he did so, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he prayed. He prayed with conviction. He prayed with confidence. He prayed for his disciples and he prayed for us. And God the Father has heard this prayer. And he continues to answer it. And he does so for his glory, for the Son's glory, and for our salvation. Amen.